Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined today by Nathan Zilbert, a senior resident in general surgery also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? I'm doing very well, Amol. How are you? I am very happy. Uh, It's a beautiful day and beautiful evening, and uh, all is well with the world. And so, you passed your royal college exam. And I passed my royal college exam. Which Congratulations. I'm a, a fully licensed. Well, I guess I don't have the license yet, but theoretically qualified to practice. We understand. We understand. The uh, the forms are, are pending. It's uh, <laughs> forma- form- formalities at this point. And uh, yeah. Coming Good to work. A, coming to a night shift near you. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. Today... You and I, Nathan, are going to talk about uh, two interesting papers. You're going to talk about antibiotics for intra-abdominal sepsis, so kind of an acute medicine paper. And then I'm going to talk about lipid-lowering drugs in elderly patients, kind of the opposite of an acute medicine paper. And then, of course, as always, we will wrap up with our Good Stuff segment, bringing you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Nathan, why don't you tell me about the Stop It trial? Antibiotics for intra-abdominal sepsis. Yeah, I thought you'd like the uh, the study name. Stop it. Study to optimize peritoneal infection therapy. It's pretty which, good. Which, uh, you know, not bad for a bunch of surgeons, I, th- I thought. You'd agree. And uh, th- this was a, a randomized controlled trial published in uh, late May in the New England Journal that found that a shortened course of antibiotics was uh, basically equivalent to conventional therapy for intra-abdominal sepsis. Okay, so that sounds important to me. Um, so tell me why do this study to begin with? What's current practice and how does this study sort of fit into what we know about treating intra-abdominal sepsis? Well, I think in general, there's obviously a desire to use antibiotics as judiciously and appropriately as possible. And, and generally, I think for most types of infections that we treat, that's, you know, the most brief duration of therapy that will uh, effectively treat the condition because we all know of the problems with resistant pathogens and antibiotic-associated infections like C. difficile colitis. And there has been, I think, some emerging uh, evidence and guidelines and expert opinions that uh, have indicated that the way that people have classically continued antibiotics after source control has been achieved for intra-abdominal sepsis is really uh, unnecessarily long. The standard practices have been to keep people on a relatively long duration, maybe a week to two weeks, uh, basically waiting until people's white count and fevers have resolved, and oftentimes continuing uh, that for several more days, maybe even after they've been discharged from hospital. This study was done to try and uh, demonstrate that that uh, is not necessary. Can you tell me a little bit about who, what patients we're talking about when we talk about intra-abdominal sepsis? So in... The United States in general, they uh, highlighted that there are about 900,000 cases of intra-abdominal sepsis uh, that you know, present for um, you know, treatment every year. About a third of those are appendicitis and the other two-thirds, uh, a variety of other uh, diagnoses and etiologies. For the purpose of this study, they had a wide range of conditions and actually went out of their way to uh, limit uh, the number of patients with appendicitis included in the study, which I think is, is likely a strength. And they defined patients with intra-abdominal sepsis as those with fever and a white count and uh, unable to tolerate their normal diet 
with a confirmed uh, intra-abdominal source of sepsis that underwent an intervention to achieve source control. So that was the, the patient population. And could that intervention have been an interventional radiologic procedure as opposed to a surgical procedure? Yeah, so it could either have been a, a percutaneous drainage procedure or, or an operation, either a, an open or, or laparoscopic uh, procedure under general anesthesia. Okay, how did they do this study? So they randomized uh, people after they had uh, met this inclusion criteria of basically being uh, eligible in terms of the diagnosis and having a, a, what they deemed as uh, adequate source control treatment. They had uh, just about 520 patients at 23 different hospitals. And the intervention was to receive uh, four days of antibiotics. And the control group was basically to continue antibiotics until two days after resolution of uh, the clinical parameters of interest, which was fever and white count and being back on a normal diet. Okay, and so how does that control group sound like in terms of normal, typical clinical practice? Yeah, so to me, it sounds like the control group adequately uh, reflects clinical practice uh, from certainly from my experience, I think. Uh, and that was demonstrated by the fact that in the control group, the average duration of Antimicrobial therapy was eight days, which to me sounds about right. Uh, okay. And so tell me about their findings. So their main outcome was a, a composite of either surgical site infection, recurrent intra-abdominal sepsis, or death within 30 days. And they found no difference in uh, this composite outcome between uh, the intervention group and the control group. Also, when they broke it down, looking at each of those three factors individually, they also saw no difference. So the main finding here is that a four-day course of antibiotics is equivalent to standard care. Okay, so that's compelling for sure. And yeah, and and I think a a, a couple of, of interesting things though. So they were equivalent. So there was no improvement with this uh, shorter duration of therapy in terms of the incidence of these complications. But I think what's interesting is that they were diagnosed uh, much earlier. So those patients who had uh, been on a conventional duration of antibiotics. It took about 15 days for both surgical site infections and recurrent intra-abdominal infections to be diagnosed in those patients that developed those issues. Whereas in the patients uh, who had only the, the four-day shorter course, the intervention group, those numbers were about uh, nine and, and 11 days respectively. So I think both clinically as well as statistically significant decreases in the duration of uh, identification and presumably then, you know, treatment of these complications, which has, uh, I think, implications obviously for both, uh, you know, not prolonging uh, patient harm because these diagnoses are made sooner and, and managing resources in a, in a more efficient way. Yeah, that's, I think, actually really interesting finding. And I guess it makes a lot of sense in the sense that stopping antibiotics is really then a good sign of how good your source control was. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that was, a, I think, a, an important point that the authors made. And, and I think certainly that we see in our guidelines coming out at U of T, you know, when people are not resolving, the treatment is probably not more antibiotics. They probably need to be uh, re-imaged or may, maybe re-explored in the operating room to uh, ensure that you do have adequate source control. That's the reason why they have a white count and a fever, not that they need more uh, longer course of antibiotics. Okay, interesting. And can you just tell me what were the rates of 
complications? So the rates of uh, uh, that composite outcome of either surgical site infection, recurrent interabdominal sepsis, or death was about uh, just over 20% in both groups. And does that seem pretty reflective of typical practice? Yes, I would say so. I mean, you know, especially given that this includes a, a wide range of, uh, of diagnoses, I would say, you know, it's, it's within the range that could be expected. I mean, I think if you're talking about uh, simple appendicitis, those rates seem quite high. If you're talking about perforated diverticulitis, they seem a little bit low. So Sure. And so um, I guess whenever we talk about a study that has an equivalent result, we want to know about the power of that study. So you mentioned there was about 520 patients in this study. What was it powered to detect, and can we feel comfortable in saying that there's no difference between these two groups? Yeah, so they powered the study to detect a, a difference in uh, 10% uh, in the you know, this overall composite uh, complication rate, uh, assuming a 30% complication rate in the control. So that was a little on the high side. The complication rate, as mentioned, was around 20%. They calculated a, a sample size needed to be about actually 500 patients per group. Uh, so they did not get to that point because at an interim analysis, the uh, committee of investigators uh, elected to stop the trial because of the equivalence seen at this uh, planned interim analysis. So that sounds a little bit sketchy when you have a uh, basically only half of the uh, uh, sample size uh, included in the initial power calculations, but I guess at the same breath, you know, you have to, I guess, have a little bit of faith in the, in the process and the uh, analytical process being conducted by these experienced investigators. Yeah, I agree. It's like obviously never ideal to have a, a trial stopped early um, or, you know, uh, technically underpowered, but uh, the findings do seem pretty compelling. Okay, so uh, why don't you wrap up and tell us a little bit about what you think are the major takeaway points from this study? So I so I do think that this is a, is a study with uh, you know practice changing implications. I I think the uh, classical or you know typical practice that certainly I, I've seen in my in my training uh, practiced among a variety of surgeons looking after a variety of these types of uh, of you know infections uh, is is based on a lot of dogma, and I think this study puts the treatment of intra-abdominal sepsis into a more uh, modern context that is, I think, more uh, judiciously using antibiotics. And so I, I think it's an important study, and I, and I think it's something that actually can be uh, applied safely in practice. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, thanks so much, Nathan. Let's um, change gears. Yeah, so let's uh, shift to your topic, uh, lipid-lowering therapy in, in elderly people. So why don't you tell me about uh, kind of the current lay of the land uh, in that regard? Yeah, why don't I give the uh, one-line summary of the, the article up front so we all know what we're talking about. So this was a prospective cohort study that was published by Al Perovich and colleagues in the BMJ which found that statin use for primary prevention of cardiovascular events was associated with a 30% relative reduction in stroke in patients over the age of 65, but was not associated with any difference in rates of coronary heart disease. All right. So that's the bottom line. And so your question was, what's the sort of lay of the land right now? Yeah, what's the state of the union? <laughs> So the reason I picked this study was because this is a really important question 
which is we have randomized control trial evidence to show that lipid lowering therapy and specifically statins are effective in both primary prevention and secondary prevention of cardiovascular events. But what we really don't know about is in real world patient populations and specifically elderly patients, what is the effect of lipid lowering therapy? And this study looks specifically at a primary prevention patient population. So people who have never had a cardiac event in the past. So that's sort of the lay of the land. It's like a really important question and we don't have good data about it. All right, so how did uh, these investigators tackle this uh, important question? Yeah, so this was an analysis of data from the three city study, which is a prospective cohort study in three cities in France. And it was a, it's a study that's designed to assess the association between vascular diseases and the risk of dementia. So that's the primary purpose of that study. And this is an analysis of the data that's been gathered in that study. What they did was they randomly selected non-institutionalized people ages 65 years and over, and then consented them for participation in this study. So they enrolled about 9,000 patients between 1999 and 2001, and then have been continuing to follow them since then. So in this study, they excluded the patients who had a history of coronary heart disease or stroke and excluded, excluded patients who were on lipid-lowering drugs other than statins or fibrates. So they included patients who were on either a statin or a fibrate as lipid-lowering therapy for the purpose of primary prevention of a cardiovascular event. And ultimately, this left them with a study sample of about 7,500 patients. And they followed these patients for just over nine years on average. Okay. And they assessed a primary outcome, which was either coronary heart disease and another primary outcome, which was stroke, and compared patients who were on lipid-lowering drugs when enrolled into the study versus those who were not. Okay. So what were their findings? Yeah. So they, they compared these patients either by, by a variety of ways, first just by a simple comparison between the groups, and then they tested this with multivariable regression, trying to adjust for various possible confounders. And then also did a propensity matched analysis as well. So various statistical methods to try to correct for the fact that this is a non-randomized population. Mm -hmm. So here's what they found. They found that about 28% of the patients used lipid lowering drugs overall. About half of those were on a statin and half were on a fibrate. Now my initial remark is that that rate seems a little bit wonky to me because now, you know, I think in most places, the vast majority of people would be on, if it was monotherapy, would be on a statin and not a fibrate. Um, well, most places, but not these three places in France. Possibly, or also not these three places, to be more precise, not these three places in France in 1991 to 2001, 1999 to 2001, sorry. Right. And so here's what they found. They found, first of all, that in this population, there was a relatively low rate of events overall. So per 100 patient years, there was one coronary event, and per 100 patient years, there was 0.5 strokes, approximately. So relatively low rates of events. And what did they find? They found no difference in coronary heart disease between the group on lipid-lowering therapy and the group not on lipid-lowering therapy. That is dramatically different from randomized control trial data. The second thing they found was that there was a 30% relative reduction in strokes in patients who were on lipid-lowering drugs compared with patients who were not on lipid-lowering drugs. 
So how do you put this into the context of the of the randomized data? I mean, I guess you made the point that the randomized controlled trials do not specifically focus on the, the older population. So do you think this uh, sort of supplements or uh, gives us insight into maybe some subgroup that, that, that the maybe higher quality evidence didn't look at? Or, or should we believe the, the RCT data? Yeah, so let's just talk a little bit about the quality of the, the analysis, and then maybe we'll contextualize it related to the RCT evidence. Specifically, obviously, the big problem with this kind of study is the potential for bias. And the number one potential cause of bias here is what's called in epidemiological jargon, indication bias, which is that the, these populations, the control group and the group on lipid lowering therapy, are systematically different because at some point, a physician decided to put one of these group of these patients on lipid lowering therapy and someone decided not to put the rest on lipid lowering. So, I mean, that's sort of my question. I mean, you know, so this is inferior evidence right? because yes. of because of this systematic bias that we have in so how do we how do we kind of apply this data knowing what we know from the uh, from the RCTs but i guess as you say less focused on this older population yeah exactly okay so um, i think the first thing to note is that certainly these investigators did their best to adjust for differences using a variety of statistical methods and the results that they found were consistent across all their various analyses. So I think we can accept that this is a high quality observational study. So compared to the randomized control trial patients, here are some key differences. So the first is that when you look at most of the lipid lowering therapy trials, the mean age of participants is around 60 to 65 years. There was, there's one trial, like one famous trial that was specifically focused on older patients who have risk factors for cardiovascular disease. That was called the PROSPER study. It was a study of pravastatin. Uh, and it was specifically focused on people aged 70 to 82 years. And it showed it's, that... It's so nice discussing this paper with someone who just took their internal medicine uh, royal college exam. <laughs> yeah, yes. as if I knew the PROSPER study for my royal college exam. But uh, you're... Well, I hope you did. <laughs> I'm not sure how you passed if you didn't know that. Yes, I don't know how I could have gotten past those uh, hawks at the Royal College. (laughs) So the PROSPER study showed that pravastatin reduced the incidence of major coronary events, but not of ischemic stroke. So kind of the exact opposite of this trial. Unlike a lot of trials which are geared around secondary prevention or patients at really high cardiovascular risk because of multiple comorbidities, This patient population, this real-world prospective patient population, are people who, by the design of the study, didn't have a vascular event until very late in life, right? So the average age of first vascular event in this prospective study was 79 years for the first coronary event and 81 years for the first stroke. So arguably, or not even arguably, this is a low cardiac risk population. Yeah, and I also think it's notable that uh, the average age of the participants was actually, you know, 74 years old, right? As a, even though the inclusion criteria for the cohort was 65, so I think this really is a, you know, an older uh, population, very different than that 60 to 65. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I guess you're right, an older, healthier population exactly. by definition, in that they uh, were being treated with primary prevention, so a selected uh, group of elderly people. Absolutely. And correspondingly, they had different lipid profiles. So if you look at the lipid profiles of the patients enrolled in this study, 
compared with uh, those in randomized trials. In this study, they had much lower levels of LDL triglycerides and higher HDL versus study population. So again, a, a much lower risk lipid profile. So those phenotypic differences in the patients might explain some of the observed differences in the sense that these patients are at lower risk of having coronary events to begin with. Um, but interestingly, there seems to still be this effect of reducing strokes. Mm -hmm. So why, why don't you tell us you know, how you think this should be applied in, in practice or what it means in terms of future trials that maybe need to be conducted? The way I apply this data is that it highlights an important gap in our knowledge. It highlights an important discrepancy between some real-world observational data and the randomized clinical trial data that we have. I think it suggests that we must be very cautious with modeling studies which extrapolate from randomized trial evidence to uh, real-world populations and specifically elderly populations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that this suggests that we really need to have trial-level evidence in these older patients. So that's, that's, I think, the major sort of research takeaway points. In terms of clinical takeaway points from this, you know, I think that the, the randomized trial evidence suggests that statins are beneficial in patients to reduce cardiovascular events in general. This study suggests that there is a benefit in terms of reducing stroke. At the same time, it is, I think, somewhat reassuring that having patients on lipid-lowering therapy probably does reduce their cardiovascular events in some respect, whether it's strokes or coronary heart disease. That's my clinical takeaway from this, which is a little wishy-washy, but there it is. All right, great. Well, thanks a lot. Okay. Let's go to our good stuff segment. Tell me what caught your attention from the world of medicine this week. So this uh, article in the National Post definitely caught my attention, although I'm not sure it would be qualify as good. It's uh, titled, Nearly One in Four Canadian Medical Grads May Be Fudging Claims of Being Published on Their Resumes. So can I just say, our one of our co-rounds table hosts, Fahad, just like emailed me this thing like 30 seconds ago. So I don't know if you guys are in touch or if we're just all no, magically is, on the same we're wavelength. we're all connected. We follow the same uh, Twitter uh, uh, Yes, that's probably. what you mean by wavelength, the same Twitter feed. <laughs> we uh, clearly were both uh, shocked by this report, which uh, was looking, I will admit, at a narrow group of people applying to uh, otolaryngology. So maybe that's a specific group of keeners. But this is pretty shocking that 25% of these people uh, had publications on their on their resume that uh, were either not publications or publications that they were not involved in. Yeah, and or their that, author order was incorrect or something like that, right? Like there was some discrepancy right. in the way they reported the publication. Right. So this, this was a news article about this paper, so I have not reviewed the breakdown of the different uh, degrees of dishonesty, but uh, suffice it to say... 25% thereabouts had some uh, significant dishonesty ranging from, yeah, you know, changing the author order to listing a publication that does not exist. And this, uh, you know, article was putting this in the context of the uh, hyper-competitiveness for residency matching and the limited number of spots uh, that are becoming more limited in the Canadian match, et cetera, et cetera, and the dishonesty that uh, can sometimes... Uh, be unfortunately encouraged by the competitive environment so uh and the difficulty with checking these things right no one has the time to 
No, I know. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I will admit I review applications for residency for our program and uh, you look at the publications and maybe you ask people about them in the interview if you have the opportunity to interview uh, some of the people. But I definitely do not. Frankly, the, probably the longer the CV, the less likely I am to uh, verify. Yeah, a note and, to uh, all yeah. people keen to apply to general surgery at the University of Toronto. Well, fool me once and all uh, next year I'm going to be on the on the prowl. All right. Uh, yeah, thanks, Nathan. It's a really, I think, interesting and important question. So my good stuff segment, and I'm going to give you a little warning that this may result in a bit of a rant. Uh, and so feel free to cut me off if you feel like I'm losing the plot here. Okay. So noted. I want to talk about an op-ed in the Globe and Mail that was uh, published by a Canadian family physician by the name of Yanni Friedhoff who is a nutrition and weight loss expert. And the op-ed was entitled, Canada's Food Guide is Broken. So let me start by asking you, Nathan, what do you know about Canada's Food Guide? Well, you're supposed to have uh, certain servings of fruits and vegetables, grains, proteins, and uh, dairy products to uh, have the Canadian Food Guide stamp of approval of a healthy diet. Right. So I have to say my earliest recollections of the Canadian Food Guide were in elementary school, being taught this like food pyramid yeah. and, you know, how to live healthily. Yeah. Dr. Friedhoff points to some fundamental problems with the way that the Canadian Food Guide is designed. And there are sort of like two key points here. So the first is industry influence. Mm-hmm. So there's a 12-member Food Guide Advisory Committee that helped shape the Canada Food Guide. of the advisory members were employed by food industry or related corporations. So, for example, the education manager of the British Columbia Dairy Foundation and the executive director of the Vegetable Oil Industry of Canada are on this advisory committee. And if you look at the Canada Food Guide, it recommends that everyone consume two to three glasses of milk, very specific recommendation, and two to three tablespoons of unsaturated fat every day. Again, very specific recommendation. And when Dr. Friedhoff, who you know has written books about this topic, looks at the evidence, he says there's no evidence for these recommendations. So that industry influence is one questionable thing. And then the second is really a more fundamental point. So the way that the Canada Food Guide was constructed is it's all about getting enough of the right nutrients, which is exactly what you said. You have to eat a certain proportion of things to get the right nutrients. You need to X amount of zinc or vitamin A, right? Or vitamin C in your diet. And this neglects a more holistic approach to food habits, which is what the evidence shows is important when we talk about health. So for example, our evidence is around like a Mediterranean diet. It's not around, you know, zinc levels in, in your diet. And one of the dangerous things, not just about the fact that we're neglecting that holistic approach is that A focus on specific nutrients allows companies to market their products to make them appear healthy. So, for example, Fruit Loops could say we have whole grains and fiber, right? Or two servings of fruit or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to just quote Dr. Friedhoff for a second, okay? Here's what he says. So you're going to transition from your rant to his rant. Yes, (laughs) because it's so much more eloquent than my own. Our guide remains woefully phobic of saturated fats, almost wholly ignorant of sugar, strangely in love with dairy, 
insufficiently cautionary about processed meats, ultra-processed foods, and eating out, and bizarrely supportive of the notion that juice and fruit are one and the same. Mm -hmm. Which I think is like, if, you know, that's obviously ridiculous, but true. Juice counts as the same serving as like eating, you know. Right, even though uh, a can of orange juice has more than sugar than a can of Coke. Yeah, exactly. And then he says these positions, while hugely friendly to Canadian agriculture, product manufacturing, and the Canadian restaurant industry, do not serve our health's best interests and instead serve to further our country's burden of diet and weight-related disease. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, certainly an important topic. And, and, you know, I think it's somewhat telling that not that I am necessarily paying super close attention to the uh, work of our dietitian and clinical nutrition colleagues. You never really hear about the Canada Food Guide mentioned in the hospital by these people who are giving our patients you know, advice about nutrition, whether it be people in weight loss programs or certain types of specialized post-operative diets or diabetes education. I don't hear about the Canada Food Guide. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and interestingly, one point to sort of count is that the Canada Food Guide is the second most downloaded government document after tax forms. <laughs> Which I think is kind of a fun statistic. All so, right, so let's continue to ignore it, and good work publicizing that it's uh, largely absolutely. Uh, and let me offer us uh, Dr. Friedhoff's solution. Take ten more seconds of your time, which is that Brazil launched this very critically acclaimed 2014 food guide, which really takes this holistic approach to talking about healthy eating. And there's ten summary recommendations that are included in that, and we'll post a link to an article that talks about that. I just, I read those. Do the all-you-can-eat like, Brazilian barbecue uh, type diets again, <laughs> yeah. in the recommendation? <laughs> yeah, Brazilian barbecue doesn't make it, doesn't make it on the list. That's, but a, here's what that's they say a guide I first. can get behind. <laughs> they say things like, eat with others when possible. Like, how revolutionary is that, that the food guide is talking about how you eat, not just what you eat? Because we know when you eat with other people, you actually tend to eat less and more healthy. Secondly, they say, be critical of food industry advertising. Sounds uh, much more consistent with uh, Michael Pollan-style uh, writing about the experience of food and eating whole food rather than processed food and those kind of what actually sound like common sense things when you when you hear about them, but clearly need to be articulated uh, explicitly for our North American society. 100%. Okay, that's it. End of soapbox. All right. Well, it's, uh, that was a great one. Okay, thanks Nathan. Uh, pleasure to chat with you as always. Likewise, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay.